everybody, Magnus here. You know, a lot of people make fun of 1990s comics. The way they tell it, you'd almost think they weren't avidly collecting those same comics themselves. But me? I've got a real soft spot for 90s comics, and so, starting in December of 2017, I'm launching a six-part mega-series called Cover Date, January 1991. The idea is to talk about, well, comics with a January 1991 cover date. Anyway, yeah, that's right. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is going back to January 1991 for a look back at what comics were really like. Is it really as bad as people say? Well, there's only one way to find out. I want you to test drive some 1990s comics along with me. Who knows? You just might find something to fall in love with all over again. So, come back to January 1991 with Trennis Magnus for a fond, festive, frolicking trip down memory lane. The fun starts in December 2017 only at Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. You can find Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at TwoTrueFreaks.com or by searching in iTunes. Or, I guess you could search on Google if you're feeling really lazy. Cover date. January 1991 because 1990s comics are awesome. studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football, Year-round, nobody cares. Basketball, year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me to make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You've been trying that Jet on Mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard.
Hello, and welcome back to Trenis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is I talk about comics. Or at least that's what you'd think if you listen to the show with any kind of... Uh, on any kind of regular basis for the past bunch of years, because that seems to be predominantly what I've talked about. But at least on paper, what I do is I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But like I say, most of the time in the past couple of years, what I've been talking about is comics. And so what I've wanted to do is just sort of break up the monotony a little bit and just start talking about movies that I've kind of had an affection for for a long time now. And so the reason for that is because when I first started Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, I kind of front-loaded the first bunch of episodes I did with discussion about uh, discussion about movies. But the thing is, I didn't want to become known as a movie podcast because that's really not who I am. But these days, I guess I'm a little bit more comfortable with it. I don't know. In any case... What I've decided to do is just talk about a couple of different movies that I've always enjoyed, and who knows, maybe you guys have never seen them before, and now you've got a tip for a movie that you can get into. Or maybe you, maybe you've always enjoyed this, uh, you know, this the, the same movies too, and this is something that we have in common now, and you can send me some some feedback about it. So I don't know. Oh, and now you look at it, I guess. But anyway. As it goes for today, today's movie is Night of the Comet. Now, for those of you who don't know, this is... It's basically a movie that, that at least in my opinion, takes, takes advantage of sort of current events, you know, things that were going on at the time that this movie was released, and also kind of half-ass predicts the zombie craze that we're living in even now, but... I get ahead of myself. The synopsis for Night of the Comet goes a little something-something like this. The Earth is passing through the tail of a comet, an event which has not occurred in 65 million years. The last time coinciding with the, ex the extinction event that wiped out the dinosaurs. On the night of the comet's passage, which takes place 11 days before Christmas, large crowds gather outside to watch and celebrate. 18-year-old Reggie Belmont works at a movie theater in Southern California, and she's annoyed to find the initials DMK have the sixth highest score on the theater's arcade game, with all the other high scores being her own. She stays after the theater closes to play until DMK's score is removed, and also to have sex with her boyfriend Larry, who is the theater projectionist, in the steel-lined projection booth. Meanwhile, Reggie's 16-year-old uh, 16 sister, uh, Samantha, or Sam, argues with her stepmother Doris, who punches her in the face. The next morning, a reddish haze cov uh, covers everything and there are no signs of life, only piles of red dust and heaps of clothing. Unaware that anything strange has even occurred, Larry goes outside and is killed by a zombie. When Reggie goes looking for Larry, she encounters the zombie. She beats the shit out of the zombie, escapes, and then heads home to find her sister. Fortunately, Sam spent the night in a metal shed which shielded her from the comet's effects. 
After figuring out what's happened, they hear a disc jockey and race to the radio station, only to find out that it was just a recording. They come across another survivor there, Hector Gomez, who spent the night in the back of his uh, steel semi-truck. And by the way, if if Hector looks anything like Chakotay, from Star Trek Voyager. It's just a coincidence. Think nothing of it. Now, please stand by while I take a drag off of my e-cig here. Hmm. Anyway, to get back into it. When Sam talks into the microphone, she's heard by researchers in an underground installation out in the desert. As they listen to Reggie, Sam, and Hector debate what to do, the scientists note that the zombies, though less exposed to the comet, will eventually disintegrate into dust themselves. Hector leaves to see if any of his family survived, but promises to come back. Reggie and Sam then go shopping at what appears to be an abandoned mall. However, after a firefight with some zombie stock boys, the girls are taken prisoner, but end up getting rescued by... Um, a team of scientists from the think tank. Reggie's then taken back to their base. Audrey White, played by Mary Warrenov, a disillusioned scientist, offers to dispose of Sam, who was diagnosed as having been exposed, and then also to wait for Hector. After she fakes euthanizing Sam by injecting her with a sedative that only puts her to sleep, she kills the remaining scientist. When Hector returns, Audrey briefs him on the situation and then gives herself a lethal injection. He and Sam then set out to rescue Reggie. <clears throat> the, re uh, the researchers had suspected and prepared for the comet's effects, but inadvertently left their ventilation system open during the comet's passage, allowing the deadly dust to permeate their base. Meanwhile, Reggie's become suspicious, escapes, and discovers that the dying scientists have hunted down and rendered healthy survivors brain-dead. They harvest their untainted blood to keep the disease at bay while they search desperately for a cure. Reggie saves a boy and a girl before they're processed, then unplugs the other victims from their life support machines. Hector and Sam get the trio out of the base. Eventually, rain washes away the red dust, leaving the world in a pristine condition. With Reggie pairing up with Hector and the other two being just kids, Sam feels left out. When she ignores Reggie's warning and crosses a deserted street against the still-operating signal light, she's almost run over by a sports car driven by Danny Mason Keener a teenager who's about her own age. After apologizing, he invites her to go out for a ride with him. As they drive off, the car is shown sporting the initials DMK on the vanity plate. The end. So, what did I think? Well, my guess is that this movie was somewhat intended to tie into a lot of the hoopla and the hype related to Haley's Comet. Because this movie was released on November the 16th, 1984, and Haley's Comet, it made its most recent pass by Earth in uh, February of 1986. And I remember that this was a big fucking deal at the time. I mean, everybody was talking about... Uh, Haley's Comet, what a big deal it was. You know, there were TV specials, and it was just... I remember that it was part of pop culture at the time. You know, it was virtually inescapable. Comets in general, and Haley's Comet in particular. So, uh, 
my guess is that intentionally or not, but I'm thinking it probably was intentional. This movie ties in with a lot of the hype and the hoopla that was going on with Haley's Comet at the time. But I did not see this movie when it when it first came to theaters because it came out, like I say, in 1984. And it looks like it had a pretty limited release. The other thing is, I didn't actually see this movie until I was actually in high school. I remember that I came home, I was a freshman in high school, and I came home from school, turned on HBO, just as the opening little announcement for this movie called Night of the Comet, you know, a classic from the 80s, this thing that flashed on uh, HBO, and I thought, well, fuck it, I, I, I can watch it, and so I did, and I gotta tell you, I think a lot of people have a favorite 80s movie, for some people, it's Ferris Bueller's Day Off, for other people, it's going to be better off dead. Some people are more into the breakfast club, you know, so on and so on and so on. For me, when you say 80s movie, I don't know why, but what I think of is Night of the Comet, you know? There's something that's just so, and I mean this in a positive way, but there's something that's just so cheesy 80s about this. You know, the dialogue and God knows the haircuts and everything. Everything about this is... It just screams 80s to me, and in all the best ways. It looks 80s, you know? And on the, I mean, on the one hand, it looks 80s, but on the other hand, it's just, this is not the way that I personally remember the 80s looking. And so, I don't know, there's, there's this weird dichotomy there that, for some reason, it, it's like it's true, but it's not necessarily factual. Does that make sense? And that's, I guess in a weird kind of way, that's what I'd say about Night of the Comet. You know, it's... When you laugh, it's almost like you're laughing at the movie rather than with the movie. But it's 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 it's, it's kind of hard to explain, but it's as though that doesn't hurt the movie somehow. You know, usually if you laugh at a movie, that hurts your your enjoyment of it. But somehow, Night of the Comet is the movie that you can laugh at. Not laugh with, laugh at. But it's like, that doesn't diminish the movie at all, you know? And it's hard to, it, it's hard to put, to put a finger on it, but there's something about this movie that I just, I eat it up with a spoon, you know? Cannot get enough of. And it's not just the fact that Mary Warrenov plays Audrey White in this movie. Now, Mary Warrenov has had a very long, very distinguished, depending on how you define such a thing, very long and very distinguished career. Um, she was at one time one of the Warhol superstars. But who she's always, always, always going to be to me is uh, uh, the doctor, uh, Dr. Von Furst from the fourth season premiere of Knight Rider. She was basically uh, Dr. Quinlan's sort of main squeeze, you know? I, they never, I mean, they allude to it about as much as, as an 80s adventure TV show intended for children possibly can. They allude to it as much as they can, but what we're basically supposed to believe is that Dr. Quinlan and the doctor are, they're basically fucking, you know? And so they can't come right out and show that, though. So, anywho... And so that's pretty much who she's always going to be to me for some reason, you know, for better or for worse. And 
So she's also, because of that, sort of this, because of my love and affection for all things Knight Rider, she's kind of this iconic 80s actress, even though she's not an iconic 80s actress. Her heyday was really the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. You could fairly well describe that as being more like the downslope of her career. And holy shit, I'm talking a whole lot about somebody that most of you probably have no idea who she is. So I'm just going to move right along and say that one of the little interesting bits of trivia that I discovered when I was just reading... not I, It's not like I was doing any kind of in-depth research or anything like that. I was just checking out the fucking wiki page. And one of the things that I discovered is that the character of Sam, you know, the sort of bratty little sister... She was an influence. She was one influence, you understand, on uh, uh, on a Joss Whedon for Buffy Summers, you know? She's not, like, Buffy is not in any way necessarily based on, on uh, Sam Belmont. There's just an influence there, right? It's important to clarify on all of that but you know watching the movie especially like if you think of Buffy the way that she was portrayed in like I would say probably up to the, about the halfway point of the first season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer yeah she kind of reminds me of Sam and, it, and and I would say probably going up to maybe the end of the third season you see these sort of flashes of things that I could totally picture Sam Belmont saying or doing, or thinking, or whatever, you know, and I, it's one of those things that the minute somebody points it out for you, you can totally see it, but you would never have noticed just on your own, you know, so I thought that was kind of a nice, nice little touch that this kind of B-movie from the 80s has actually got influence far beyond what you'd originally think, you know, so that was kind of interesting. The other thing was Robert Beltran, who, as I kind of joked, he played, oh golly, what's that? Uh, Chakotay from Voyager. And oddly enough, that's not where I know Robert Beltran best from. You know, he was actually a guest star in an episode of Lois and Clark from the first season. This is an episode called Fly Hard. Now, I could get slap happy talking about Fly Hard and the first season of Lois and Clark. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to say that he was sort of the ringleader of the thieves that invade the Daily Planet office in, in uh, Fly Hard from the first season. And that's actually where I know him best, because that was the first thing that I saw him in, you know? And for some reason, that's just who he's always going to be, as far as I'm concerned. So anyway, that's that was kind of, you know, interesting. I don't think this was the first thing that the guy ever did. I think he actually had a career... God knows, but uh, uh, before Night of the Comet and certainly after, but this is kind. Of, this is probably one of those things that whenever he goes to you know cons and whatnot and he signs a bunch of bullshit, this is probably one of the things I would imagine that he gets a lot of. He gets a lot of requests, I would think, to sign copies of Night of the Comet Blu-rays and DVDs and whatnot. I just, I would find that very easy to believe myself. So anyway, as to the movie itself, like I say, it's just got this quintessentially 80s vibe to me. I mean, it, it like I say, it, it sort of defies words, but I mean, it's just this impossible, over-the-top, cheesy, 80s-style slang that everybody's throwing around. 
you know, did you make it with so-and-so and all of that? And I don't know why, but this movie is, it's not laugh out loud funny. Like I say, it's more roll your eyes funny. It's more you're laughing at the movie rather than with the movie funny. It's it's more just kind of marveling at just how mangled and misshapen mainstream pop culture had become by about the early 80s, you know, and I'm one of those people who on the one hand, I've got an affection for the 80s because that's when I was born, that's a good chunk of my childhood, and those are not exactly my most formative years, but there's a, I, I don't know, there's a heritage there, I guess is maybe the way to put it, where, you know what, I was uh, I was born and I had my a good chunk of my childhood in the 80s, and so there's always going to be a sort of nostalgic affection for it, on the one hand. On the other hand, I wasn't, I, I was happy to see pop culture move on and go in other directions, you know for movies to take a different type of tone, for music, you know, popular music to go in, uh, to go in different directions and things like that, you know, away from all of that synthy stuff. So in a weird kind of way, Night of the Comet is, it, it's kind of a time capsule in some ways, but this is not exactly the world's greatest movie, and there are some plot holes that Maybe I just missed it. Maybe there's an explanation in the movie, but it it becomes pretty clear. Like the thrust of the movie is, or, or is at least par- uh, partially that Reggie, Sam, and Hector have in fact <clears throat> been infected by the red dust and they're gonna die. It's gonna take a while longer, but they're still gonna die. Except they don't. They seem to have, we're told, the same infection as everybody else, but somehow the the scientists from the think tank, they were going to die no matter what. All Hector did was speed up the process for him, but somehow the... the, the I guess the, the kids, the teenagers, the children, whatever you want to call them, They've been infected too, but it's like they're still alive at the end of the movie, and it just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So, like I say, I mean, this is not exactly a perfect movie. There are things here that don't add up, but it is amusing, and it is funny in that eye-rolling kind of way. It is funny uh, to watch, but it's just got this quintessentially 80s look, this quintessentially 80s style. For people who are kind of aficionados of the 80s, I think you could do a lot worse than watch this movie, you know? So, I highly recommend it. I think it's a ton of fun. I love it. It never gets old. Even though it is, like I say, kind of cheesy. And honestly, the tie-ins that I suspect this thing was intended to have with Haley's Comet, they're not so obvious as to be obtrusive. But I do think they're pretty noticeable. So, whatever you think that's worth, there you go. So, I think that's pretty much it for me in this segment. Be right back after these messages.
dramatic reading. Sorry, I ain't sorry. Sorry, I ain't sorry. I ain't sorry. He trying to roll me up. I ain't picking up. Headed to the club. I ain't thinking about you. Me and my ladies sip dissy cups. I don't give a fuck chucking my deuces up. Suck on my balls, paws. I had enough. I ain't thinking about you. Middle fingers up. Put them hands high. Wave it in his face. Tell him boy bye. Now you want to say you're sorry. Now you want to call me crying. Now you got to see me wild. Now I'm the one that's lying. And I don't feel bad about it. It's exactly what you get. Me and my baby, we gone be all right. I see them boppers in the corner. They sneaking out the back door. He only want me when I'm not there. He better call Becky with the good hair. He better call Becky with the good hair. Because your new mail is smart enough and good enough, and doggone it, people like you. That's why they send you mail. Read the mail! Read the mail! Read the mail! You've got mail. <coughs> you have 937 messages, all of which are marked urgent. my little feedback intro that I created the other day. Basically what I've decided is, you know, certain things really do need to have their own sort of like musical identity, you know? And so anyway, so I, I just threw this together. You know, I'm not sure if I'm going to keep it or if I'm going to come up with something else at some point, but yeah, that's basically it. And, you know, that's actually a philosophy that I've tried em employing with other things, like my, my uh, uh, Magnus Talks About Smallville series that I do, that retrospective that I do. Now, that has hopefully a more enjoyable, but certainly more identifiable and more specific type of uh, musical identity going for it. And same thing holds true of of my weird stuff series that I'm gonna that, that I do with uh, Chris Honeywell. This too has its own musical identity. You know, it uses the same uh, intro and outro music every single time, or at least it's supposed to. And so, anyway, those are the seventh and eighth episodes. Does anybody want to take a guess that probably there's going to be some major surgery coming down the line to the first through sixth episodes at some point in the future? Yeah, seems like a safe bet. But anyway, uh, I think that's probably enough about podcasting administrivia. Now, basically what I want to do here is kind of start whittling away at this uh, huge sack of feedback that I've got, because guys... 
I'm not kidding. I've got a freaking huge backlog of feedback. All right. So uh, it's really piled up. And just to tell you how bad it's gotten. Actually, you know what? Before we even get into that, the commitment I'm gonna, I'm just going to go ahead and make right now is I'm going to go. I, I usually I only have time, or at least I only allow myself time to go through one email at a uh, one email in a, a feedback section. But this time, no, fuck it. I'm going to go ahead and push through two emails. Two for sure, maybe more, but two is the minimum that you can expect. And just to tell you how far behind I am, at the time that I record this segment right now, it is October the 26th, 2017, right? The feedback that you're about to hear was written and sent to me on November the 25th, 2014. Okay, not kidding. It's taken nearly three years to get to this. So, just a little something, something to keep in mind. So anyway, but this is an email that was sent in by my old friend, Professor Allen. And for those of you who don't know, and honestly, I don't know how you couldn't know. If you've listened to my show for any length of time, you've heard Professor Allen on this show before, but whatever. For those of you who don't know, uh, Professor Allen is the co-host and co-founder of really too many podcasts to really uh, go into off the top of my head. I mean, you practically need a matrix and like an Excel spreadsheet in order to, to organize everything and find it, uh, find everything and catalog it and all that. But basically, it really does come down to two separate web addresses. The first one is relativelygeeky.blogspot.com, right? And that's really uh, where uh, Professor Allen hangs his hat in, you know, for, for the majority of the time. Uh, he is basically, a, well, uh, the Quarterbin podcast is pretty much, it's almost like it's a force of nature, you know, all by itself. Uh, and that's really, I think, and Professor Allen, assuming you're listening to this, if I'm wrong on this, please do correct me. But as far as I know... I think that might be the most well-known of of your podcast, but I, I reserve the right to be wrong on that. But I don't know. That was just the assumption that I made. There's really nothing that I can base that on other than that's just kind of what I assumed. The other one, um, or at least one of my favorites for a really long time, was... and why Why is it that I can never remember the names of this uh, the, the the names of these things until, or rather, at the moment that I'm recording, right? Like I can I can tell you all about the short box showcase, you know, when the mic isn't turned on. But the minute the mic gets turned on, oh, all of a sudden, wait, it's the short box shortcake, the short box uh, express, maybe? Uh, no, but no, it's the, it's the short box showcase. Anyway. Um, I don't know if I've ever actually said so out loud, but that is, that's actually not the first Professor Allen podcast or the first relatively geeky podcast I ever, I ever listened to. The first one was actually the Quarterbin podcast, but obviously the, the short box showcase is going to rise pretty quickly to the top of the list, right? And of course that's what ended up happening. <laughs> <sighs> So long ago. But anyway, so yeah, 
That's Professor Allen, right? Or at least that's the Relatively Geeky Network. The Quarterbin podcast is, at least it's it's one of my favorites, put it that way. But the other thing that he's got going is Dorkness to Light, which you can find at dorknesstolight.blogspot.com. And basically, it's a combination blog and podcast. And it's actually kind of neat in as much as well, actually, I think there's. A, I think he has a Tumblr too. Now that I think about it, but basically, it's uh, Professor Allen and Emily, and they they basically talk about. Well, actually, I'll just read you the description. It says dedicated to wrestling with questions of faith, religion, and theology that arise in comic books and other pop culture media. Occasionally irreverent, rarely sacrilegious, and that actually is a pretty decent way of uh, of putting it, right? Basically, the thing that I've always had, just a very strong aversion to doing is talking too much about religion on my show. And honestly, the reason for that, this isn't, this isn't like intended to be a pot shot at anybody, least of all professor Allen. But the reason for that is I've always wanted my show to be accessible to everybody. Right. And if I sit here telling you guys about my religious beliefs, then there's 25% of you, who will agree, but you're not going to care that we agree. You're just going to agree. But that's going to still be annoying to you because I'm not telling you anything you don't know. There's going to be another 25% of the uh, of the audience and the listeners who um, just don't care. And if you don't care, that's annoying to you. So that's a problem right there. And then there's another 50% of people who disagree and are now annoyed by the fact that I'm talking to them about things with which they disagree, right? So this idea that or that you you risk alienating half the people by talking about your religious ideas, I don't think that's true. I think you actually alienate everybody, you know, because even the people who agree with you, they're still going to get annoyed because you're telling them a bunch of bullshit that they already know, they already agree with, and there's no persuasion to be done there, Right. And so my view is that you run the risk of bothering everybody with that, right? So that's one of the reasons why I don't do it, right? I just fucking don't. And Professor Allen, basically, it's like his attitude about that was, oh, this is one of the things we're not supposed to talk about with people. Hold my beer. And the Dorkness to Light blog is just, it's a ton it's a ton of fun, right? I, I enjoy – and this isn't because Professor Allen and I agree because you know he and I have a considerable amount of what I would call religious overlap. But he and I disagree on some very – and I think he would agree with this. I think he would agree that we disagree on some other kind of key things. So you know, it's one of those things where I've always got my sensors up with, with Professor Allen or for that matter with Emily, knowing that I don't necessarily agree with them on everything, but there is a lot of similarity there. There's probably more similarity than there are differences. Put it that way. And so, and then of course there's their Tumblr, which is, it's basically chock full of, among other things, memes. And if there's anything that I love, it's religious memes. I just dig it. But they also have, um, let me think, they have uh, just art, paintings, uh, photographs of statues and other things. It's not just memes. So I don't want to be too dismissive here, but I mean, they do have a fair amount of memes. So let's got to be honest here. So anyway, all in all, 
Oh, and then, of course, there's the podcast itself. And, you know, there are very few podcasts out there where you can honestly say, like, hand on heart, I've never heard a bad episode of this. But Dorkness to Light is kind of one of them. I mean, again, Professor Allen and Emily and I don't necessarily agree on everything, but 10 to 1, they see stuff in pop culture that either I didn't notice or I didn't fully appreciate, right? And, and of course, now I'm blanking on the character's name, but uh, the priest guy from the first season of Daredevil is a pretty good example. I mean, I enjoyed uh, that character whenever he was on the show. I enjoyed his participation in the story, but, you know, Professor Allen and Emily just went to town on that, and that's... See, it's hard to say, like, you know, that's one of the best episodes. They're all one of the best episodes, so, you know, what's it worth? But anyway, the point is, you know, I happen to think that religion, and I guess maybe this is the point, I happen to think that religion is one of the most interesting subjects in the world. I just can't imagine ever talking to anybody about it. But anyway, but the point is, that's obviously not an attitude that they have, and I think that their blog, their Tumblr, and their podcast are the better for it. So anyway, all in all... Very enjoyable. And so I've talked around it, I think, maybe long enough. Basically, this first uh, piece of uh, feedback, this comes from, like I say, Professor Allen. This is dated, again, I'm just so far behind here, November the 25th, 2014. Let that sink in, guys. 2014. Yeah, it's bad. So anyway, but Professor Allen writes, Trentus. I just finished listening to episode 71 where you gave your 2014 in review address. I'm going to put this actually on pause just with the first sentence here, uh, Professor. And I'm going to be honest with you and, and say that I didn't really know what you were talking about, right? Uh, basically, I, I'm, I'm one of those fire and forget type of podcasters, right? I usually just turn on the microphone, I pants my way through it, and then I turn off my microphone and I start editing, right? And so nine times out of ten, I don't necessarily remember the stuff that I say, you know, because it's kind of hard to remember if you just make it all up as you go along. So I don't normally do this, but in, in, in the case of your particular bit of feedback, Professor, what I did was I actually went back and listened to that section, uh, basically the latter half of that episode, and... Oh, boy. This is one of the reasons, for those of you who don't know, this is one of the reasons why I really don't listen to old episodes of my show, right? Because cringe. You know, that is one of the most overused adjectives, God knows, on YouTube. But I would say I would probably extend that out to the entirety of the Internet. Cringe. People just, it's kind of like creepy or, let me think, snark. It's just one of those words that's just been driven into the fucking ground. You know, it's like it doesn't even mean anything. It cringe. What the fuck does that even mean? But anyway, it, it nevertheless applies in this case, right? It's just, it's kind of cringy, you know, from like a technical standpoint. I guess we're all our own worst critics. And when I listen to my old episodes, which I don't really do very much, but when I do, all I really hear are the flaws, pretty much. And so that... Certainly is the case with episode 71. 
I mean, yeah, PQ River, I think, acquitted himself rather well, as he's kind of known for doing. But I don't know, like my participation in that episode. Hmm. I don't know. Anyway, so, uh, but I, anyway, not, not, I'm, I'm kind of getting off track here. The point of it is I went back and listened to that, and I guess I hadn't really realized how much I, I really did open up. And so I, I don't know. It's, it's weird what you can forget sometimes. So anyway, all of this is a nice way of uh, setting the table on what comes next. To get back into Professor Allen's email, he writes, I appreciate your willingness to share both the good and the bad with us, the job triumphs and the job struggles. When anyone is podcasting about their hobbies or their interests, their own personality and history, of course, comes through. But to be so blunt and open with us was a real treat to listen to. I'm going to put this uh, back on pause and say thank you very much, Professor. I got to tell you, you know, like stuff like that. I've all, I've often said that I don't exactly have like the most confessional type of podcast, you know, and that's not meant to be like a swipe at anybody who does kind of lay it all out there. I've just never really been like that type of guy, you know, it's never really been me. And so the few times I've ever done it, maybe that, you know what, maybe that's what was really bothering me about that second segment is that it, it was a little... It was a little more open than I I customarily do things, you know, and so I don't know. It, it you know, I, I realize it's kind of impersonal and maybe even a little passive aggressive, at least on the surface, to say thank you and you know go through your 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 email here, you know, three years after the fact or almost three years after the fact, but you know, it's uh, it, it really does mean a lot professor that that you said that to me so thank you very much i'm i'm very thrilled so anyway to get back into the professor's email he writes so glad to hear that things are back on track and that maybe this november went by without any of the usual undue hardship maybe your luck is changing keep up the good work and god bless you signed professor allen host quarter bin podcast co-host short box showcase and again professor thank you very much now you know, I, I originally was pretty much, I guess, going to leave things there. But, you know, that last line or a couple of lines of um, your email, maybe it begs for an update. So I don't know. Um, in 2016, I, I basically started a new job. And I kind of went into this thing with my eyes like kind of open that this is you know, a temporary job. And so, you know, don't necessarily get too comfortable here. But at the same time, I mean, like when everybody around you is saying, yeah, there's a very good probability, in fact, that this job that you have, this temporary position is actually going to transform into a permanent position. Well, I think you can be forgiven for taking them at their word and at the very least hoping for the best. But needless to say, didn't exactly turn out for the best. I... It wasn't in November. I'll say that it was not in November that I ended up uh, getting laid off from uh, from that uh, uh, job. It was actually uh, October. I think I may even be able to give you the exact date. October the 28th, actually, is when it happened. And so that's technically not November 
but it's kind of close. And for those of you who don't know, or for those of you who just don't remember, uh, basically what I said in episode 71, and this is true, but what I said in episode 71 is that, you know, there came a point when I just kind of took stock of things a little bit, and I remembered when major changes happened. Not necessarily bad changes. They may have been good changes. But major changes, nevertheless, you know, I started looking back at things, and I thought, you know, son of a bitch. November is just not my month, you know? It's really not. Like, shit goes down during the month of November. Now, again, it's not necessarily a negative type of experience, but it is usually a, well, it's pretty memorable, right? So uh, put it that way. Life-changing type stuff is what I'm talking about here. And so technically, if we go by the strictest letter of things, no, this, you know, getting laid off from that new job that I got didn't happen in November of 2016. So something else memorable happened in the month of 2016, and that definitely was a life-changer, but... If I'm not going to talk about religion, I for damn sure I'm not going to talk about politics. So anyway, all of this is to say that, yeah, you know, Professor, it's like anything, I guess. You you just take your lumps, you know, the good with the bad. You take it as it comes, and it's all you can do. So, But all the same, number one, thank you very much for taking the time to send this in to me. And number two, I'm sorry that it took this long to get back to you, but... I'm determined to get caught up on my on on my feedback here. So, you know, guys, this is this isn't necessarily just for Professor Allen. It's really, I guess, for everybody. Keep the feedback coming because I promise you, this is. I'm gonna get through it, okay? And I'm gonna try to to be. I don't know, a little bit more diligent about it. Put it that way. So anyway. And to suit words to action, uh, the next piece of feedback that I'm going to go through here, this is, this is dated December the 1st, 2014. And the, this, is, uh, this was sent in by Ben Perlman, right? And Ben writes in, to, oh, the subject line is Episode 65, The Supergirl Saga, right? So just to kind of set the table on that, Ben writes, Hello, sir. I've been a listener for a while, and I really enjoy your episode topics. You bring a fresh look on many topics and are not afraid to say so. I'm going to put Ben's email on pause and say thank you very much, Ben. You know, um, there is a kind of a tightrope that you kind of have to walk as a podcaster where I happen to think that conventional wisdom is sometimes the opposite of truth. All right. I'll give you an example. I enjoy both of the Joel Schumacher Batman movies. I think they're they're a good time at the movies. Now, I think Batman Forever has a little bit more meat on the bone than Batman and Robin, but I think they're both good and they're both enjoyable. And you know, I guess it, what I, what I typically do, I can't speak for anyone else, but what I do is I try to think of that franchise all in. You know, Batman 89, Batman Returns, Batman Forever, and then Batman and Robin. Basically, wedging all of those things into the same continuity with one another. There's an argument that they don't belong in the same continuity with one another. But I kind of like the idea of the character progression that Batman goes through in those films. And 
it's like I'm the only one in the room that can see it, or at least I'm the only one in the room who's willing to talk about it. So, but, you know, I'm, I've gotten, you know, text messages and I've gotten uh, Facebook messages and stuff like that from people who say, you know, I still don't think I'm ever going to enjoy Batman and Robin, but you raised some good points. So anyway, (sighs) having said that, the risk that you take is sometimes being contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. And I really hope I've never done that. I honestly don't think I ever have, but I hope that I haven't. You know, I mean, there are times when, you know what, the group gets it right, you know. Um, It seems to me that, uh, let's take um, uh, Captain America, the Winter Soldier, as an example, right? The fan consensus of that movie seems to be that it's a lot of fun. It, It has some demonstrable and interesting character growth and character development for Captain America. And it also has a lot of, you know, fun fights, and and it's it's kind of a change of pace. Even for Marvel, I mean, this is kind of a change of pace. <clears throat> you know, uh, tonally, stylistically, you know, this isn't exactly a, a cookie-cutter Marvel Studios type of movie, you know? And this is one of those times, Captain America, the Winter Soldier, this is one of those times when... I think that groupthink on this movie is pretty much on the money. You know, most people enjoy the Winter Soldier, and I tend to agree with them. I think they're. I think the Winter Soldier was was a lot of fun. You know, where I again have to break away from the conventional wisdom is Civil War, which I thought was a clusterfuck. But anyway. Um, Whatever. Maybe this isn't the time to get into that. The point is, there are times, and where I'm going with this is to say there are times when conventional wisdom, I think, gets it right. But I don't want to be a slave to conventional wisdom, you know? So, anyway. I leave it to you listeners to determine if I'm doing a good job on that. So, anyway. To get back into uh, Ben's email, though, he writes, Due to scheduling, I just finished listening to episode 65, The Supergirl Saga. As usual, you and your guest, which if I'm I'm going off memory here, but I'm pretty sure that was J. David Weeder, but you can call him Dave, who's recently returned to Facebook. I think that was who I brought in for that episode. I have to double check, though, and I'm kind of too lazy to do that. So we're going to assume that it's J. David Weeder, but you can call him Dave, and we're just going to leave it at that. <clears throat> As usual, you and your guest covered the storyline perfectly. I, however, have a question about this story which has been kind of bothering me for a while. My understanding is that the pocket universe where the story takes place is supposed to be a universe with pre-crisis rules, quote-unquote. For example, the Kryptonian criminals are way more powerful than Superman, and the Kryptonite doesn't hurt Superman. So, in order to stop the Kryptonians, Superman first takes away their powers with the gold Kryptonite, and then kills them with the green. Unless I'm wrong which happens more often than I'd like, didn't pre-crisis continuity establish that the different colors of kryptonite do not affect powerless Kryptonians? If that's true, then how was Superman able to kill the then-powerless Kryptonians using green kryptonite? I'm hoping, with your vast knowledge, you can help me understand this. I look forward to your comments. Thank you. Signed, Ben Perlman. 
And uh, Ben, I'm just going to just take a stab at this and say that, you know, I don't think that there are any like sources or anything like that that you can point to to back up what I'm about to say. So take this with as many grains of salt as you see fit. Okay? But the way I processed it is the pocket universe that John Byrne created, functionally what it was supposed to do <clears throat> was preserve the Legion of Superheroes foundation of Superboy being the inspiration of the team. That's the only reason it ever existed. And so because of that, there are going to be a lot of Silver Age trappings inherent to the pocket universe. But what's key, and what I always assumed, is that we're not supposed to regard the pocket universe as being the literal pre-crisis universe. And for that matter, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily follow that this really is the pre-crisis Superboy. And you kind of even allude to that in your email whenever you wrote that uh, the story takes place. It's supposed to it's supposed to be in a universe with pre-crisis rules. So it's like I think even you like you're recognizing that this is supposed to abide by pre-crisis rules at least in some ways, but this isn't really the pre-crisis universe. And that, I think, is what we need to remember here. The The rule that you mention that green kryptonite, or any color kryptonite really, doesn't affect powerless kryptonians, number one, I think even the pre-crisis it's, it itself contradicts that because Supergirl's origin uh, shows that uh, kryptonians that are living on the remnant of Kandor are being slowly poisoned by kryptonite, even though... They're under a red sun. They don't have powers or anything like that. So at least in theory, this should not have affected them, but it did. And that's what necessitated Supergirl's evacuation from Kandor. And so, you know, I nevertheless think that you're right about that rule, even though Supergirl's origin story kind of contradicts it. I still think that that was the rule. But... I don't think that we should be so literalistic as to say that all of those same basic pre-crisis rules necessarily apply to the pocket universe. If for no other reason than John Byrne needed them to not all apply, case in point, Superman executing the Kryptonian criminals using green kryptonite after depowering them with gold kryptonite. So, you know, there you go. What I think we're supposed to assume is that the pocket universe has a lot of the same flavor and tonal consistency of the pre-crisis universe, particularly the Silver Age, but we're not necessarily supposed to apply all of the pre-crisis continuity, or for that matter, all of the pre-crisis rules onto the pocket universe. And let's face it, the pocket universe is kind of an imperfect idea to begin with anyway. I mean, I'm at a loss to think of an example off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure that there are... Legion stories that involved, or pre-crisis Legion stories that involved pre-crisis Superboy and other DC Comics superheroes, like Supergirl, for example. I mean, that one's kind of obvious, but I'm pretty sure there are other ones besides even that. And as we know, that can't possibly have happened with the Pocket Universe because the only superhero that the Pocket Universe ever had was Superboy. The only inhabited planets that the Pocket Universe ever had were Krypton and Earth. 
And so instantly that rem that eliminates any possibility of a lot of – in fact, I would say the great majority of pre-crisis DC comic book ideas. You know, And so the pocket universe, such as it was, it was imperfect as far as explanations go, but it was one of those things that it passes the squint test. You know, it's – I guess it was thought to be good enough to get the job done. Now – Obviously, it wasn't good enough to get the job done because right after Paul Levitz left the title, well, the 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 warm reboot that was five years later, and then the hard reboot that was Zero Hour, and then the yet another hard reboot that was the three boot. Those things kind of it's like they came together and they happened more and more often, you know. And so apparently. The Pocket Universe wasn't a very good explanation for how the Legion ever formed in the first place. So, I don't know. Ultimately, all I can really say on this is that, you know, Ben, if it doesn't work for you, there's really nothing I can say that's going to make it work for you. But it, to me, it's one of those things that it never needed to work perfectly. It just needed to work well enough. And so, my view is that, at least for... You know, the the small smattering of 80s-era Legion stories that I've ever bothered to read. Yeah, the pocket universe works well enough. But I can see where that would have been a serious albatross going forward. Because, you know, John Byrne has a... I forget what it's called, but he has this theory. Um, it may be called uh, Candor Syndrome. Where you have this really complicated story piece that every time this this element of your story or your continuity or your character or whatever, every time this thing gets mentioned in the story, you always need to spend a couple of panels explaining what this is. And the more you complicate what that thing is, the more time you have to explain, you have to spend explaining it in the future, right? So back in the old days, it was easy for the Legion to say, yeah, we're a, we're, we're a team of superheroes. We were inspired by Superboy. And then Superboy gets taken out of continuity. Okay, we're a team of superheroes. We were inspired by Superboy. Except Superboy never really existed. Instead, the guy that we met, he was actually an inhabitant of a pocket universe that was created by one of our enemies, specifically to trick us into forming. And it kind of raises a lot of questions about time travel that I don't have enough time to get into in this little bit of convenient plot exposition. So we're just going to move right along to the next panel and then blah, 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 blah. The story resumes. Right. And so I can see where, you know, like as time goes by, that's going to get worse and worse and worse. And it kind of makes me think that, you know, this whole idea of five years later. And I think what they ended up doing was they created a character called Kent Shakespeare, who was again, going off memory here, but I think he was basically supposed to be like a Superboy surrogate and that's the the uh, Legion of Superheroes' new inspiration, Kent Shakespeare. So any time in your Legion back issues where they show Superboy or they mention Superboy or Superboy does something, you can just mentally substitute Kent Shakespeare in his place, and then that's going to be basically, well, he's going to serve the same function. Except he doesn't, because now you have to also explain, well, who was Supergirl? And so who the, who, you know, who the fuck was that? Okay, well, we know who Superboy was. What did Supergirl do in all these stories? I see that she's in the stories, but now you're telling me that she never existed. So anyway, it's one of those things where, you know, it maybe sounded good on paper, but 
the pocket universe as an explanation for the Legion's origins, it just doesn't really pass the squint test all that well, you know? And so I think actually this is probably the main reason why everybody wanted to just say, fuck it, we'll do it live. And we're, we're just going to reboot the Legion after zero hour. And that's how that whole thing ever came about. I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of weird that of all the things about the pocket universe that don't work, you're settling on, you know, using green kryptonite to kill powerless Kryptonians. I mean, I'm not picking on you, Ben, but there are a lot of other problems going on here, at least that relate to continuity and relate to the Legion and don't necessarily relate to Superman or the the rules that were set up with the, the, the pocket universe and how it's used, at least for Superman's participation. So it, it's just, it, it's kind of funny to me. So anyway, um, I'm not sure if that helps you at all, Ben, but... Uh, uh, at the very least, it gave me a chance to run my mouth. So uh, I guess we take our victories where we can get them. So anyway, I promised you guys two bits of feedback, and I have given you two bits of feedback. Now, guys, I kind of find myself in a little bit of an ethical quandary here because among the this vast archive of feedback that I need to work my way through, there's an email in here that was sent to me by Sean Angle, obviously before he passed away. And so, in fact, it looks like it was about a year before he passed away. And so I'm really not sure like what the ethics of this are. Like, should I read this on mic? Is that ethical? Or should I just leave it out? Is that the ethical thing to do? I mean, like, what would Sean have really wanted? You know, well, I kind of have to assume he sent this to me and he knew at least when he sent it, he knew that this was going to be read on mic, so yeah, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what to do with this, guys. I, I, I really don't. I mean, I have this email, but I'm really not sure what to do with it. So well, let me know. I mean, do you guys, do you want me to read this? I mean, do you want to hear what Sean has to say or had to say? Uh, just, you know, let me know. Just send me an email. TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. T-R- E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S, TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Because, guys, I'm going to be very honest with you. I don't really know what the right thing to to, to do here is. So uh, let me know what you think. So, And uh, generally speaking, I'd just like to thank uh, Ben Perlman and Professor Allen, both of you, for taking the time to write in and say such complimentary things. I apologize to both of you that it took this long to get to uh, uh, to get to y'all's emails. You know, mea culpa. That's my fault. I'm sorry. And like I say, I'm going to make... I know I say this shit all the time, but I really do mean it. I'm going to make a very diligent, very concerted effort to work my way through all of the feedback because, guys, I've got a shit ton of feedback here. I'm not kidding. There's emails that uh, I need to go through from uh, Fanboy Miss Prime, from Tom Panarese, from uh, Kirk uh, uh, Grainveld, uh, David um, David Rizzuto, um, uh, Zumo, he's got an email in there. You know, uh, the list just goes, you know, fucking on and on and on and on, you know? And we need to uh, start working our way, our way through this, you know? So anyway, I, so I don't know how I'm going to do it. I just know that I'm going to find some kind of a way to get caught up on all of my email and I'm sorry that it ever came to this in the first place but anyway so hopefully you know that at least 
we're, we're starting to balance out the ledger a little bit more and all of that. So anyway, but that I think is pretty much it for me this week. So bye everybody. I will see you next week. Traveled far. One journey has ended. A new journey is about to begin. Hey everybody, Magnus here. I do a podcast called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. What I do is spend six episodes talking about comics, movies, and TV shows. But all that stuff gets put on hold every eighth episode so that I can talk about small things. Smallville's the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in all of history. Smallville's my favorite version of Superman apart from the comics, and so every eighth episode, I put Smallville under a microscope. Listeners all around the world have been shocked to discover just how awesome Smallville truly is and just how well it holds up to critical scrutiny. I've recently finished what most people regard as Smallville's first run, with the conclusion of the mighty third season of the show. But, as awesome as Smallville may have been up to this point, the best is still to come. And I want you along for the ride. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville, an eighth episode feature of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. Now with fewer cigarette breaks. So, check out Magnus Talks About Smallville. Every eighth Tuesday, for all the Smallville small talk you could ever hope to shake a stick at. Magnus talks about Smallville every 8th Tuesday only at twotruefreaks.com. That's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus. 
which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacor of Milan, Italy.